Lord, I ask now that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good evening. I'd like to begin tonight by telling you a story uh, about, uh, about the hardest job I've ever had. Uh, this is a true story. I've, I've mentioned before that I worked as a therapist before I moved to Georgia. Uh, after finishing school, my wife and I had moved from Mississippi to Arkansas, and I began to practice therapy. Uh, at the beginning, I practiced uh, primarily with survivors of abuse. Um, after about a year of that, I shifted into a, a juvenile treatment center. Um, this was a particular kind of juvenile treatment center, the kind with cinder block cells that the residents lived in, with barbed wire around the edges, with iron doors and gates, and anyone that left this treatment center left with shackles on. Uh, the youth that I worked with had been convicted of crimes, uh, and I worked with a, with a particular group, within a subset within that community that had been convicted of particularly heinous crimes. I had an office there right in the middle of the cell block. It, it really actually was just a bigger cell. It was the same structure, cinder block, a giant gate. It had a brass key that was this big, and there was no handle on the door. You, you bolted it when you went in and when you went out. And my job there, part of my job, was to help the youth to tell the story of what they had done without any of the lies that we constantly tell ourselves to make it seem like it's okay. Whenever I would start to work with them, we would have a conversation. Inevitably, at some point, it would go something like this. I want you to know, before we get going, that I've read your file. I know all the things that you've done. Whatever it is that the court knows, I know. It will go easier if we just start with being honest with each other. And then we'd begin, and we'd go over and over and over again. The things that had happened, the things that had led up to that, the things that had followed after and we would begin dismantling all of the little stories that we all tell ourselves, right? I didn't really do it. It wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. There was some extraneous circumstance that made it a little bit better or made it not bad at all. And we would begin to pick these apart. You know, we, I don't know that there's anyone we lie to so much as to ourselves, except for God. And this was a long and arduous process. And there were times where I would sit in my office, that great iron door locked, and I would bury my head in my hands, and I would pray and wonder and search for, for something, for some hope, for some kind of light, something to breathe life back into that suffocating darkness. And what would ring in my ears at the time was a quote that I had come across from a, a Christian psychologist named Diane Langberg. She said, she was talking about therapy, and she said, In therapy, God has taught me about his pursuit of those in darkness. I would rather sit in the light and invite them to come to me. I would rather not go sit in the darkness and be a light to them. And I would think about that. I would sit in that darkness, and I would pray, All right, God, I'm here. You called me to, be, to testify to the light, to be a little light in this dark place. But what on earth is so little light going to do in a situation like this? Well, tonight, we're similarly gathering, gathering together in darkness. Um, the, the story we read from the gospel, this happens at night. And it's brighter out right now, but when we leave here tonight, it will be dark. 
Uh, and if you think about it, every week of the year, we gather under the sun in the light and joy of the Lord. But on three occasions in this season, we gather at night. Once at the beginning of the season, as we remember our need for God, and twice at the end of the season, to remind ourselves what God did in response to that need. Tonight is one of those nights we sit here together for a little while. When we leave, it's dark. And the question for us is the same as the question that I asked in that cell. Where is the light? How does Christ breathe life into the great and overwhelming darkness of the world? We're in the Gospel of John, and this is, this is appropriate because the Gospel of John talks about light and life a lot. At the very beginning of the gospel, John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light was coming into the world, yet the world did not know him. You see, even at the beginning, John was getting us ready for this night, for what was about to happen, preparing us to understand it. A little later on, he says, The light came into the world, and yet men loved darkness more than the light. And oh, how great did that darkness feel on this night, on that night of the Last Supper, Christ sat in a room with those closest to him, the ones that he had called to be with him, a small candle of light in the midst of a dark city. Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And in just a few hours, the city would prove the truth of that saying. The very people who waved branches in the street and said, Hosanna, blessed is the man that God has sent us, in the morning would yell, crucify, crucify him. And they would choose a murderer over their king. And so Christ, the light of the world, has gathered his own into a little room for one last meal, for one last moment of light before things begin to feel very dark indeed. And I'm reminded of this moment of an idea that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien talked about, this moment of you-catastrophe. So we know, we know the word catastrophe. You means good. And Tolkien said that the arc of the Christian story was defined by this, that the moment of triumph was the moment of piercing darkness. That when things reached their absolute depths, that was when Christ's glory became apparent. And in this, in this, in that moment, these three days, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, the day when God himself lies on, on when God himself lies in the ground on a slab of stone, and yet this is the moment of triumph, the moment where God shows himself faithful, even when everyone else is faithless. John will write in another, in another place that the person who says that he has no sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Right? There's something in us that needs salvation. And even in this place where Jesus has gathered those who are closest to him, think about who, who's there. Judas has already put a price on Jesus' head. He's already taken the money. Before the night is over, Peter is going to swear to God, I don't know Jesus. And everyone else in the room is going to run away. The people in the room, it turns out, are barely any better than the people outside the room. All will betray. All will abandon. Some more severely than others. Some return more quickly than others. But all prove unfaithful. And so we come back to this question. In the midst of this darkness, what is Christ going to do? Look with me at verse 1. What does it say? How does Christ, looking into our darkness, respond? It says that he knows the hour has come, and having loved his own, he loves them to the end. He loves them with a complete love, 
without delusions. He knows what's about to happen. Later on the night, he's going to talk about, you're all going to leave me. I know it's going to happen. He knows what they will do. And in that sense, he also knows that he knows that they're broken, that the people that he's chosen are stuck in this, lie, in this darkness, in these lies, right? He knows that from the very first betrayal in the, guard, in the garden, the very first meal, humanity has become a twisted and corrupted and broken thing. As the prayer book says, apart from your grace, there is no health in us. And that's why Jesus has come. It's in the knowledge of all that that he comes and that he loves. Christ loved us and he gave himself for us because there was no other way. You know, as I, I've wrestled with how to emphasize this, right? Because I want to talk about Christ's love. I worry, though, that if we don't understand where we're at, we're not going to understand the, the impact of Christ's love. And sometimes in our society, sin becomes a sort of mythology. It becomes a, oh, you know, sin becomes a stand-in for brokenness or for, um, you know, harmful behaviors or, or for social injustice. And all of those things carry a kernel of truth. I mean, there's, there's a reality to those, but they also become a way that we sort of distance ourselves from what's inside of us, right? We distance ourselves from our responsibility for the things that we do. How can we understand the love of Christ if we don't understand our need of it? What I'd like to propose, my dear brothers and sisters, is that tonight we be honest with ourselves about that, that we recognize that darkness, that something is there in our core, in our very hearts that's broken. And Christ knows this. He knows us. We may fool ourselves, but there's no fooling God. And how does he respond? He responds by loving us. He loves you wholly and completely, not with a love built on lies or on optimistic expectations, not with a youthful love that says, oh, well, maybe he'll get better. Maybe it's not so bad. No, the ageless God loves you fully and knows you fully. He knows your thoughts and your fickleness, your words and your deeds. And he says, this child, this one that I know is mine and I love her. And because I love her, I will redeem her. What does Christ do? He gets up from the table. And though he is God, though he is the author and the creator of all things, he makes himself like a slave. The clothing that he, adorned, that he takes off and then adorns himself with, the towel that he wraps around, this is the form of a servant. right? He takes on that role he lays down his garments, and he draws close, and he washes them. Peter, he says, Peter, there can be no pretense here. Your filth clings to you, and you cannot clean yourself. I think of the song we just sang. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. Christ has come to give you life, and you can only receive it from his hands. But then think of the other part of what he says to Peter. Peter gets the message, and he says, God, then wash all of me. And Jesus, knowing what Peter will do in just a few hours, there's this beautiful word here of, of encouragement, of, of promise. He says, Peter, you're clean. You've already been made clean. And you got to know that Peter clung to that later, right? Christ said that I was clean. In the garden, our mother and father sought to take life. In Christ, we receive it as a gift. And here's what we receive. 
At the dinner, Jesus takes the bread and he gives thanks. He blesses it and gives it to them, saying, this is my body. And the same with the cup. He says, this is my blood, which is given for you. You see, this is what the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit had planned from the beginning. It was never going to be enough to teach us. It wouldn't work to just give us the law. All of the ethics in the world, even holy ethics given in the holy law, would not be enough to save Peter, would not be enough to save Bill, would not be enough to save you. There had to be something else. The Lord had already said this to Ezekiel. He said, your heart is dead. Your will, the very core of your being, is as dead as the rocks of the earth. Something new is needed. You need a new heart a new being. Here's here's what it says, Ezekiel 36. He says, I will sprinkle, I will wash clean with water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And so he washes his disciples, and then he gives them a new source of life, One that will not die or fail, because it will be the very life of God. This is my blood, says the Lord. Drink it, all of you. This is my body. St. Ignatius of Antioch called this meal the medicine of immortality. Here the life of God, which is beyond us, comes inside of us. We receive Christ into our very being and are consumed by him. Our blood is mingled with his blood. We are nourished by his body. Our hearts are sustained by His very presence. The death and decay of sin are removed, and our very being is restored. The first meal brought death. This last meal, this last supper, brings life. My dear friends, this is Christ's answer to darkness. What does the light do to the darkness? It invades it and restores all that that the darkness has disfigured. Our souls and bodies are very being. The eternal God looked into our lives, our sin and death and betrayal, and he loved us. Knowing that we, could, that we could not, that we would not, that we would never find life, he bound us to himself so that we could not be lost. He made himself low that we might be brought high. He suffered humiliation that we might take part in his glory. He gave us the very bread of heaven that we might eat and be satisfied. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.